hello, my name's Toby Haydock, and I'm about to talk to a director who will give you butterflies. It's a beautiful sunny day and my next guest is very patient because I went to the wrong place and had the wrong phone number. But um, let's hope that second impression is better than first as I ask my guest to uh, introduce himself to say who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Um, I'm Richard Martin and I was the third director on Doctor Who, Morris being the first. And uh, my friend Christopher Barry and I had the, the Daleks to share together. Christopher was uh, dying to go off and doing something else that he'd been promised to do on film. So after two or three episodes, uh, he left and I took over the, and became the Dalek director by default. Um, so that's who I am and that's how I started. I was trained by the BBC, having done years as an actor and as a director in theatre. So I was sort of halfway there. And... Uh, the Doctor Who was probably their answer to my request to do something inward and imaginative rather than uh, Z-cars or one of the hard factual services, which... Uh, um, and they, there was nothing going, in fact, uh, to begin with, and I think they thought that I was a mistake and were about to get rid of me when the Doctor Who came up and they thought, well, this wild, young, then very red-headed man was possibly the answer to Doctor Who, and that's how I came to do that. And how does a performer um, sacrifice their life in, fr in front of the camera and doing the performing side of it? Did, was, was, was there ever a, a, a sadness that you weren't getting to do something as directly expressive as that and turned behind the camera? No way. No way. Uh, um, I, to begin with, I have never thought of myself as anything other than a performer. It is simply that I do it in a different manner, and I'm free of my own, hurrah, hurrah, limitations, physical, mental, spiritual limitations, and I can work with the people who I can see and uh, have a reciprocity with and develop their uh, spiritual, emotional, intellectual things and hone them down into the story that I'm telling. I'm really a storyteller who loves to do voices and show off, um, but would rather do it through other people now than myself. Well, and then when you get... And it's, it's interesting to see some of the, in some of the later stories and in so, and much of your other work, there are various actors that you use over and over again. But when it comes to the Daleks, you've inherited a cast cast by somebody else. So does that create a different dynamic? Yes, it does always have a different dynamic. And if you are unfortunate enough to walk into a show that's been going for a long, long time, uh, the, the actors know their character, know the limitations. Uh, if they're good actors, they will always be able to work with a director, listen to a director, and use a director as a good actor should, as a mirror. Uh, but I have had experiences when I, when, when in my early days. I wouldn't do soap operas. 
uh, and there was one soap opera which they forced me to do for a very short time and I was very unhappy with the actors and the actors were very unhappy with me. They told me not to direct. So said, compact? Yes, it was compact. And, 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 and they were hideous. They, they didn't want to know what I had to do. Uh, and they just wanted somebody to push cameras on them, and they did what they thought was right. And that's, that wasn't remotely my job as far as I was concerned. So we had a very unhappy time together, and Bernard Hepton sweetly removed me. He came in as the producer, and we went, he's an old friend, and we, we, we went out and had uh, dinner together, and he said, frankly, I'm just learning my ropes, getting my ropes together as a producer of, the television and the last person I want anywhere near is you. I said, <laughs> "Thank you, Bernard. How wonderful!" Uh, and um, and your first uh, brush with Doctor Who was also the, the world's first brush with the Daleks. Uh, so there's one thing from directing humanity, but directing this wild design that stayed to this day. I mean, we, we, do you think they? work as a design and, and how were they difficult to to manipulate cameras around? Oh yes, enormously. Um, and it only partially works as a design, to be honest with you. Uh, Terry Nation, who was the ladiest writer I have ever in my misfortune to, to uh, work with, well I didn't really work with him, I met him once, uh, but all he wrote was a mechanical um, humanoid type figure with mechanical arms or something like that. Oh, and a, and a television eye, a television um, uh, camera for an eye. He left the rest to uh, the designer, who was a brilliant designer, a BBC designer, Ray Cusack, and he came up with that design. But uh, we had problems with these mechanical arms. The eye was okay. That, that worked. We could get the the uh, swivel and uh, onto the top, and that worked very well. The arms were never a success, um, he, he, and of course Terry had stolen it lock, stock, and barrel from the War of the Worlds. Uh, but those were very complicated mechanical arms, as described by Wells. There's here we were left with no no budget, uh, hardly at all, and trying to make something which was. Uh, powerful and uh, manipulatively uh, possible. I mean, it, it from both from the uh, from the poor little guy inside, and from the fact that if you've got of somebody invading from another planet, he has he she it has to do everything. They have to be able to to uh, drill holes in concrete. They have to be able to. Uh, consume any food that's around. They have to be able to do anything. So we came out. Well, I came out with the idea that the that the right hand was the could either be anything from a power tool to um, a, a major force of destruction, and could go all the way from one to the other, and that the other should be a suction device that could both be magnetic and, in fact, I wanted it. <laughs> to be uh, their way of, of uh, consuming uh, food. I had this image, which I was never allowed, Verity thought it was disgusting, of, of a rather tarty woman walking down the King's Road with a miniature poodle, and the Dalek coming in the opposite direction. Dalek stops, aims this suction thing, and <laughs> the miniature poodle disappears straight up it, and that would have been wonderful. 
but you're far too nasty, they thought. No, no, no. I mean, I wanted to know how Daleks reproduced, how they ate, uh, you know, everything about them. And, and when we had the first time, we, we, we had a death of a Dalek and managed to prize the top off it. I can't remember which actor had to do this. I had a, a, a quite a complicated thing going inside it, a sort of uh, pulsating brain. Um, <laughs> echoing a thing I, I, did, I did much, much later, uh, William and Mary, the Roald Dahl, which is a, a, about just that. But uh, and whether I've read, read that by then or not, I don't know. Anyway, I thought that the, it's, it was quite interesting to have the idea that the uh, character, uh, the, the, the humanoid type human, has disappeared and only become uh, a, a, a complicated brain with some very, very feeble manipulative abilities, and all the rest is done me mechan mechanistically for it by thinking, by just just pulling and pushing and nudging them. So we had this sort of globule thing uh, which glowed and moved, and it was, Verity said, no way. You, no, she can, one of the thing, one of the many rows I had with Verity is that I wasn't allowed to take that shot. <laughs> well, yes, and you seem to have had quite a, a, a feisty relationship with Verity Lambert, and yet, um, you know, you were reunited all those years later for the for the DVD. So, was it friendly feistiness? No, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I, I I think she, I have I have full of admiration for her now. I thought she was very courageous then. And she was, I tell everyone this because it's not a secret, she was laughed at when she came into the BBC. She had been a, a PA for Ted Kotcheff, our greatest director at the time, possibly ever, uh, at Thames Television. And, uh, and uh, uh, Sid Newman said, you know, you're too good to just do that. Come, come and be a producer. Here's this programme I've invented. Come, come do it, baby. Come do it. So she had to walk into a very brown bead situation at <laughs> at uh, um, what's the name of our uh, those offices on the green at Jeffers uh, 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 Bush uh, Union House Threshold House. Threshold. Yes, they're two together, and she had to walk through those, those doors and come up and, and start her work. And they all used to pop out and say, what badge is she wearing today, Richard? Hi, Richard. You know, what's, she, what's she wearing? She got those high heels on. And she was incredibly self-conscious and had the gall and the courage to sustain that right the way through and prove herself. By the end, no one was laughing. But at first, it was... It, it was misogynistic and it was unpleasant and I felt for her very strongly. Oh, but I had been, by that time, I had been ten years an actor, five years a director in the theatre. I reckoned I knew my stuff as a, as a storyteller. And uh, so I used to just go ahead and cast and Verity once phoned me up and uh, s s asked me why. I, she hadn't been informed. I said, because he's the right man for the job, and I'm here to cast. And she said, and she then looked him up. I can't remember who it was, and said, oh, well, here's a fitting job. Would you mind asking me first before you book anybody? So I said, well, if I have to, yes. But it was, it was quite a 
quite a, a, um, a Serbic relationship because she was having to, to get to know uh, the profession on my and other people's backs. Uh, and she also was, had, was incredibly hands-on. She would not stand back. I like the sort of producer who says, look, I've got this wonderful story. You are the right person. I wouldn't ask you to direct it. If you go over budget, I'll shoot you personally. <laughs> uh, go, go do it, you know. But she wanted to be hands-on. She wanted to be very, very concerned. And I did, in fact, believe that I broke my little finger by hitting the desk once because she was used to sit behind me. <laughs> Bless her heart. In the gallery, and I think this was by the time we'd moved down to Riverside. No, it wasn't. We were still at Lime Grove. And uh, as usual, I was very ambitious. I wouldn't do safe, I wouldn't take safe shots. They bore the shit out of me. And as you know, with multi camera thing, the whole problem is to get the camera in the right position mm -hmm. on the axis of action. And anything off the axis of action weakens it as far as the dynamics of, of an attack or a, a, um, a reciprocity between performers is concerned. So you have to know when you, you know, because you start to move around and you're starting to look at the wallpaper and the wobbly sets and all the rest and you want to get it on there. So uh, I was fighting like crazy to get this thing finished on time, more or less on time. Never very good. I never finished on budget on time. I'm particularly proud of that <laughs> arrogant statement. And uh, about five minutes before the end, Verity said, stop the recording. I said, what? She said, stop the recording, Richard. I can't allow that hat. And it was a fashion thing. And she was, she was incredibly fashion conscious. And she thought that the hat, that the little, uh, that I think, um, I don't know who was wearing it now, but was wrong. And she hadn't seen it till then. And she, was, she wanted to, to stop, to remove the hat. And at that moment, I hit the desk with every bit of my puny power and said, we have got five minutes of recording left and you want to worry about a hat. <laughs> so it was of that. And afterwards, you see, this is Verity. This is Verity. She's so persistent. Afterwards, we were having a, uh, a drink in the wardrobe. The wardrobe would decide to give us all a drink downstairs. And I, I better avoid her, you know. She, she's obviously going to sack me. Uh, um, fine, that's okay, um, but I don't want to go on with this. And she said, Very, uh, Richard, Richard, come here, Richard. So I went over, and, oh God, now we've got to have it, have it all out. And then she said, you were quite right to shout at me, taking, taking the thing absolutely from under my feet and all my aggression left me. And she said, but I was also quite right to insist on something that I felt as a producer that I wanted. I will not sit behind you anymore. I will have the, uh, uh, the picture relayed to um, an office downstairs, but I will have a telephone link. And if something really goes wrong, I will continue. I said, okay, Verity, what can you say? <laughs> it was fair enough. So she was clever. And, and she deserved also all her success with it, and, and, and subsequently, where she did, did many very fine things. But our, our relationship, because we were both learning on the back of each other, let's face it, so it was, uh, and we were both probably incredibly ambitious. 
And was, was having Mervyn Pinfield as her sort of associate, was that an important dynamic to anchor her within the old guard of the BBC? I think it, I think it helped in a way. Dear Mervyn, um, he, I don't think she um, had a lot of truck with him, but he was a kindly man, very kindly man, very gentle man. And uh, he was particularly useful when forging those early links because she was a bit lost as to which buttons to press and he knew uh, the early drink links drinks uh, with um, the uh, electronic workshop and but what the what the they were called the Langham group you are so clever are you not the Langham group and they were already fairly out of date uh, by the time they were seconded to the programme in person of Mervyn. But he was very good at creating the wonderful Wii U opening titles. Mm -hmm. just, the, just the whole thing of feeding the, the pictures in on themselves and getting that was unique, never been used before. Uh, and it remained with the programme, well, well, not now with the present series, but it, it remained with the programme throughout the uh, whole of the early things because... It was became a, a landmark, didn't it? Mm. Absolutely. And in fact, I have to say, I think that early theme. I mean, it's the same music, but the mm. rendering is different. And that first title sequence are work because they're timeless. The CG that we watch today and in the modern episodes of Doctor Who, ten years time, that will look hokey because CGI will have moved forward. Yeah. That's not something that you can say about that title sequence yeah. because it's not really it's because it's really palpable it's extraordinary yeah. Yeah. it's otherworldly yes it is it, it, it was in to totally totally successful and it locked everybody in uh, to it you know I used to <laughs> frequently around here uh, be uh, uh, assailed by uh, fairly irritated housewives who said you are the responsible for making my little boy uh, have tantrums at night and wet his bed, are you? Um, but but it, it locked people in, and it made made uh, it, 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 there's a lot of tension in that in the Wii U. Mm. It, it's wonderful, wonderful music, uh, in in just in in its ability to uh, t to um, tune you up into uh, anything as possible feel. And I also think one of the undersung heroes of that period of Doctor Who is Brian Hodgson, because, again, looking at something like the Daleks, a lot of the success of that is, I mean, Tristan Kerr's music is very discordant, but um, dovetailing with that is this very eerie, sound, very alien soundscape yeah. that Brian Hodgson sort of makes in a corner of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Yeah. Oh, yes. I think the Radiophonic Workshop... I loved my time with the Radiophonic Workshop. I, it was a wonderful uh, woman called Delia Derbyshire, who sadly died of drink. Uh, tall, beautiful woman with, with unbounded uh, um, musical ability and invention. And she was deeply into alternative sounds and, and how they could be produced and what the resonances were and how they... She, she was lovely. We fort unfortunately, she never did uh, a sort of anything for the BBC, uh, for, the, for Doctor Who directly. Uh, but I remember working with her with more joy than, than, uh, than anybody else there because she was a real musician, that's why.
And in front of the camera, you've got the, the four regulars who made up that, uh, that early team. So we may as well go through them all <laughs> and start at the top with Mr William Hartnell. <coughs> you know, he's an actor that some people found, found quite hairy to work with, but certainly a lot later on. But you were there at the beginning. Was he, was he more malleable then, or did he...? Well, I, I think I probably was a bit of a creep, but I was able to go up to him right at the beginning and say with all honesty that his performance in Sporting Life will stay with me forever. And that is, uh, you can't say anything better to an actor, as you know, and it was totally sincere. It may sound like a creepy thing to say, but he, he, he said, oh, well, 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 he said, well I, I felt, I, I could really get inside, you know, we talked about uh, his feelings for the character, and, and, and uh, from then on, he accepted me as a director who would help him, not, I, I, there's a limit to how much you could help him. Uh, he'd, le he'd learned, as you, you know all this, but he'd learned his job with what they call the quickies. Um, and it was really as much like multi-camera, well it was multi-camera, because you had, had a camera which was the other side of the door, and the moment you walked through the door, they started the film on that, and you came through and went on acting. Um, one wonderful story, I don't know if you know about Billy, is that he was asked to do um, uh, some, some um, wartime uh, propaganda films. Uh, and one was he, was he had to be a pilot of, of a Spitfire. And there was a Spitfire and they took him to, I can't remember which airfield, one of the you know, wartime airfields there. And they said, well, what we want you to do is you want me to get into the Spitfire, start it up, and drive it into the hangar. <laughs> and he's the sort of guy, he's the sort of person who said, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, sure show, me, show me which things to pull. You know, he wouldn't say, I, I don't do that. <laughs> he, he go, yeah, do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. <laughs> and the pilot said, you know, well, wait until the guy swings the thing, then that's the, the throttle. As you throttle up, um, I'll line it up so it only has to go straight into the hangar. Uh, just throttle up and, and it'll pull forward, we'll have the chucks off and you drive it in and then push the, the throttle down and it'll die. So he did it, he did it, but he lost throttle. He went straight through and those days the hangers were a semicircular things made of corrugated iron with um, uh, heavy canvas doors either end. He went straight through the canvas doors at the far end, bucked the prop, <laughs> probably <laughs> dented the wings. <laughs> <laughs> but at least he had to go. But he had to go, and they got the shot. You know, <laughs> the it's thing. ready when you are, Mister De Mille. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so to do the more traditionally heroic role was William Russell, whose um, contribution shouldn't be underestimated. I think to those those early shows because he's the sort of driving hero character. Really. Absolute, absolute anchor man, and what a nice man too. Uh, unshakable, uh, humorous, and uh, true in what he had to do. I didn't. He didn't ever have to uh, scream and shout and lose his heart. He wasn't playing Macbeth, you know. But he he did what he had to do brilliantly. And it was very necessary to, to hold... Jackie is, was, was heaven. She was a lovely, lovely actress. And very feminine, very, very, very womanly, very... Um, both on and off stage, you know. She was just a lovely person. 
and he was quiet and humorous and and was so good-natured with with Hartnell and he would tell you now and probably has told you now that when when Billy fluffed he used to say sit down there my boy I'll do it <laughs> the, you, you always knew he said when Billy had fluffed because he told you to sit down <laughs> Uh, and the last of the quartet was Caroline Ford, whose role started off as this sort of intriguing alien girl. And actually, you you get some of the best stuff with her when she, in the edge of destruction, when she tries to attack William Russell with a pair of scissors. Oh, yeah, I've forgotten that, yes. Well, you see, I always felt that it was right, that both of them should have this otherworldly quality. I liked the fact that there was one in... in was it right in the... Uh, in the pilot, I think, where... Somebody was obviously going to die and was in trouble, and Billy Hartnell picked up a brick. Well, that's in the first four episodes. Yeah, yeah. I was in, right. Yeah. And that's brilliant. You, you know, and was surprised that the, the sort of the 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 twentieth uh, century humanist thing would say no, no, we must suffer first. Um, and she, as she has undoubtedly told you, she is an acrobat, a dancer. She, uh, she's got this weird un, uh, otherworldly face and it, she was promised a, a role of an otherworldly creature, a sort of female golem, if you like, something which is strange, quirky, odd, dangerous. And that would have been marvellous, instead of which they wrote, wrote an ordinary little sort of girl that gets picked up by monsters and taken off to the sea in bad... Uh, science fiction movies, you know, that you've ever seen. And she got very fed up with it, and quite rightly she left um, when she did. Um, but but a very nice person to work with. And that, that, that two-parter on the ties, you shared directing duties with Frank Cox. Yes, I did, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, so you only did the first episode of, of that, but it's set entirely inside the TARDIS, which is a, as a set to shoot on... Quite revolutionary in terms of spaceships, of having everything in the middle and then you can work round it. Was it a good set to shoot? Yeah, so everything, everything is difficult when you're limited for space. I can't remember whether we did. We were better when off when we went down to to uh, the um, Riverside Studios. A lot better off. Uh, I can't remember. I think we did that at Riverside because it was quite late on. No, it was it was directly after the Daleks. It was filling in between. Because you had the seven oh, no. parts of the Daleks, and then Marco Polo was seven parts, and in the middle was oh, just no, two episodes with you and Frank Cox directing. We'd still be up at Lime Grove, which was a pain in the butt. Too uh, small. Well, it was small and narrow, and simply not not equipped for that's the sort of pictures that we wanted to get out of it. Well, I wanted to get out of it. Um, and the Dalek, the the, the, the the TARDIS now is much more grandiose than it was then. Uh, always, 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 we were fighting this sort of cardboard look. Uh, the, the the money had gone on the centre column, which was lovely, you know, and built down the road here by Shawcraft uh, and powered by by various hydraulic things. And it did go up and down, and little men were lying flat, turning knobs so that it did. And the knobs and knockers on it and the flashes, they all look very, very beguiling. But the other parts of it are of the, of the TARDIS, which could and should have been endlessly sort of altering perspective and things to, to take what is needed. The, that, that sort of almost Alice in Wonderland thing of shrinking and uh, 
you know, you, you, you should open a, a door which apparently is too small, and there, if you need to pray, is a chapel. It, that's, that, that is difficult to do. It was mm. impossible for us to do. Therefore, we were always fairly limited, and good uh, science fiction is not really about people talking. Uh, they can be, they can, if they can be holed up, surrounded by the trippids, they can talk as much as they like. They, <laughs> that's that's a, a concrete piece of drama, isn't it? Mm. But just, just sort of, uh, just uh, exchanging views. That uh, you know, that's that's not that's not dramatic. Well, in terms of the science fiction that did attempt any sense of scale, it seemed to me that you were always the director that got the okay. We've got the Daleks invade London in the future. Let's give that to you know not not that we've got a couple of palaces um, yeah. and a couple of rooms for some political yeah. intrigue. You always seem to one that got the epic jobs. Well, yeah, I think I did because that's that, that's the way I, was, I I thought and that's the way way I wanted to go and uh, I that uh, genuinely genuinely excited me. You know, I I was always saying to them, "Have you talked to John Wyndham? He's still alive. You know, he's around. Our best science fiction writer." Um, couldn't we? Couldn't we have something from him? Uh, instead of which, we had some pretty awful writers, I have to say. Uh, people who would have been were all right writing storylines, which we've turned into um, uh, comics strips, uh, because because the ideas were fairly kooky, uh, and doesn't cost a lot of money to draw a Dalek, <laughs> but. Uh, we, we we never stretched. I, I mean, I would have liked, you know, why didn't, why didn't they go and talk to Isaac Asimov? You know, they, they, I wanted to to explode it, uh, and, and and it was always a matter of containment. But that wasn't just that was not not uh, Verity's fault. I have to say, it's it, that's that's uh, it was television then much more than now. Uh, my thanks to Richard Watt, an absolutely lovely fellow uh, for his hospitality and for picking me up and all sorts of things. And thanks to the actor Liz Carr for putting us in touch. She was a non-Doctor Who contact for once. Um, more from Richard at a later date. Uh, the next edition of Toby Haddock's Who's Round. We've got a sort of domino effect with the next few because we've talked to the director of the Dalek Invasion of Earth on this one and on the next one is an actor who was in it, and then after that there's somebody who was at RADA with him, and after that there was somebody who toured in a theatre company with her, so yeah, they're all a bit related, and it's just coincidence that, uh, and totally independently did I get hold of these people. Sometimes uh, there are interesting patterns, uh, uh, probably patterns just interesting to me, but nonetheless, uh, keep listening. Uh, Richard's charity, Children in Need. I would read out the website address, but it's unnecessarily complicated when thanks to the BBC, so just type Children in Need Donate and uh, and do your thing there. Uh, in the meantime, uh, have fun, and I will look forward to you listening to the next edition of Toby Haydoke's Who's Round. Um, follow me on Twitter, at Toby Haydoke, uh, and... Uh, Big Finish are also on Twitter and so do all of that internet stuff. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.
Keep it safe. You, you must keep it safe, my boy. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Early Adventures, An Ordinary Life. You people are all right? You need some help? Please. We just need to shelter to check on our friend. He's, he's been taken ill. What are you doing, Stephen? We don't know who these people are. We know they're friendly. That's all that matters right now. I'm from Kingston, Jamaica. Just got here three months ago. Michael, two weeks. Yes, but I've been here for more than ten years. We lost our home, and now we're locked out. Earth in the 1950s. You're from nearer this time than me. Have you ever thought about stopping? Staying in one place for a while? Forever, maybe? Oh, that would be strange. We've been on the run for so long. The best we can hope for is a quiet life. An ordinary life. Fish and chips? <laughs> Fish and chips! <laughs> Big finish. We love stories. We are coming. We are coming. We are here.